January 17, 2014, Girl for Trump USA joined Twitter. She was silent for a week, but on January 24th, she suddenly got busy, posting an average of 1,289 tweets a day, many of which were in support of U.S. President Donald Trump. By the time Twitter figured out that Girl for Trump USA was a bot, she had tweeted 34,800 times. Twitter deleted the account, along with a large number of other Twitter bots, with MAGA, Deplorable, and Trump in the handle, and avatar images of young women in bikinis or halter tops, all posting the same headlines from sources like the Kremlin broadcaster RT. But Twitter can't stop the flood of bots on its platform, and the bot makers are getting smarter at escaping detection. What's going on? That's what Sam Woolley is trying to find out. Woolley, who joined Institute for the Future as a research director, was the director of research at the Computational Propaganda Project at Oxford University. We asked Sam to share highlights of his research showing how political botnets, what he calls computational propaganda, are being used to influence public opinion. I'm Mark Frauenfelder, and this is Institute for the Future's For Future Reference podcast. Hi, Sam. When did you first realize that computational propaganda was a thing? Excellent starting question. Um, in 2013, I came to the University of Washington to start a, a PhD. And at the time, I had been following what was going on um, in the years previous with the Arab Spring, but also in other international political crises and, and elections. And one of the things that I had noticed was that... Um, Obviously, social media was playing a role, but also there was a lot of accounts that were suspect that were also interacting and trying to organize or spread information on social media, particularly on Twitter and Facebook. And I wanted to know what the deal was there. At the time, I, I met a professor by the name of Philip Howard, who at the time was at University of Washington and has since moved to the, the University of Oxford. And Phil and I decided we wanted to write a grant to study bots. Specifically, we were interested in the way that bots as automated software programs were used to perpetuate all sorts of political speech surrounding elections and uh, other political events. We really wanted to know what effect those, those automated accounts in particular had on public life and on the way that people vote and, and all sorts of things like that. And so we wrote a small proposal to the National Science Foundation, and we, we entitled the proposal Computational Propaganda, a study of the people who make and track bots. Because at that time, we were fairly convinced that bots were playing a big role in politics, and we weren't really sure what that role was, but we knew that it was it was a sort of a new form of propaganda. Um, and we got that grant from the National Science Foundation and worked on it for a few years, doing collaborative work with uh, with some computer scientists. And, and have since uh, gotten another grant to study what we, what we call computational propaganda uh, in more broad terms, including disinformation and fake news and all of these, these words of the day um, at the University of Oxford. So that's, that's where I've been up until recently. Let's back up a little bit and just tell me what a, what a bot actually is. A bot is an infrastructural part of the Internet. Bots have been around online since the Internet 
has been a thing. They are automated bits of software designed to do tasks that a human would otherwise have to do. When I speak about bots in the context of the computational propaganda project or my other work on disinformation, what I'm usually speaking about is social bots. And social bots are a special type of automated software program that runs a profile on social media or that automates a profile on social media. Oftentimes, social bots are used to um, mimic a person or to to create, you know, an anonymous account that can spread political information or attempt to affect the Twitter or Facebook algorithm. We we in particular have, have coined the term political bots. So we're interested in social bots that do political things online. And do these social bots, are they usually trying to masquerade as a human being? A lot of the time they are. Um, it's, it's a really crucial point to make that that highly automated social media accounts absolutely exist across different social media sites and they're used for all sorts of different types of uses. But when it comes to politics, particularly when it comes to attempting to like manipulate political conversation or to give the illusion of popularity or to amplify a candidate by making it look like he has more he or she has more followers than normal. Um, yes, the bots masquerade as a person and they, 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 they've even, we've even cataloged them stealing people's identity and using photos of real people. This is so crazy. So go into a little bit about, about like how the bot actually works. Like how does it come up with coherent sentences, much, much less, um, actually, uh, have have a, a message that's that's propaganda that that's in, intended to um, to spread a, a certain message from a certain kind of uh, you know agenda. Sure, there's different ways that a bot can be constructed. A social bot can be constructed. One of the things that you can do is build a bot that accesses repositories of information. So the bot can basically be linked up to a series of phrases that the programmer has pre-written. So the bot can say, hey, what do you think about this? And then link to an article. Say maybe the article's from uh, the, the site Breitbart or the article's from, um, from MSNBC or something like that with the goal of sharing particular news. Uh, and that's a fairly rudimentary way of programming a bot. The other thing that you can do is build uh, bots that really aren't meant to communicate on the front end with people very much at all. Rather, they're built to do what we call passive interaction with particular profiles. So those types of accounts only ever on Twitter retweet content. So they're built specifically to be sold to a bidder that then uses them to retweet their content. So in the, in the, in the case of Donald Trump, who, who we found lots and lots of bots flocking to, um, there's there's hundreds of thousands of accounts that are just purpose-built and that only retweet Donald Trump content. Um, the other thing you can do, the more the most sophisticated thing you can do in building bots is to, is to build bots that learn from their environment. And there's a whole, there's a whole area of expertise uh, around machine learning, and, and there's been a lot of conversations about how bots might be used as, as personal assistants or to help people facilitate their interactions online. 
Um, on social media, most of the time, especially on Facebook and Twitter, we don't see really sophisticated machine learning bots that learn from other people being used in attempts to manipulate uh, political dialogue or conversation. A lot of times it's much more clunky. It's much more aimed at uh, fudging the numbers or at trying to create fake trends on Twitter by getting the thousands of these fake accounts to spam a hashtag that like a uh, popular political hashtag to get that hashtag to trend and then to get human uh, users to pick up the, the, that hashtag. So it's kind of like, if you will, it, it's, it's kind of classic astroturfing in a way. If you think of political organizing that comes from the people as grassroots organizing, we think of this fake kind of political organizing as astroturfing and bots are just one other tool in the, in the astroturfers toolbox. How effective are bots at, fulfilling their intended purpose? Um, there's certainly a spectrum of effect. Uh, and, and at the moment, the, the, the work that we're doing is to try to figure out whether or not bots have an effect upon people's behavior on election day. And that's really tricky research to do. But what we can say is that there's plenty of bots out there that have really no effect that speak to the ether and, and, that are just built as silly experiments by one person or another or that are launched with the intent to try to have an effect and don't. Um, but, but we also know um, in a recent paper that I co-authored with Douglas Gilbo at uh, University of Pennsylvania, we also know that bots are, during the U.S. election, for instance, bots were able to infiltrate the highest levels of, of social media influence by interacting with accounts that we know to be human accounts and that we know to be retweeted and liked and followed and interacted with by lots and lots of different people. And what we saw was that those accounts were oftentimes interacting with bot content, retweeting bot-related content, that the bots were, were active members of that person's social sphere and network. And so we know that bots can absolutely have an effect on the communication processes that happen during an election. And they can be used to inject information into the dialogue. Um, another way that bots can be used to great effect is to take up a particular conversation topic or to support a particular person, candidate, or idea in order to create something that I call manufactured consensus. So basically what the bot does or what the botnet, which means a collection of social bots in this case, does is boost, massively boost a topic using obviously computational ability. So thousands of times um, greater speeds than a human could do, boost a hashtag or a topic or the person to make them look much more popular than they are. And oftentimes what we're seeing is that Facebook in the newsfeed will pick up that topic because they think that it's real traffic and show that to regular people, or Twitter will pick up that topic and show it in the trends sidebar on, on your uh, browser. And so what we think is that manufactured consensus is creating the illusion of popularity in order to create a bandwagon effect so that people who might previously not have had support politically or ideas that might previously not have had support somehow uh, enter the zeitgeist and get more support from the public. And I think that that's nowhere more clear than, than in Donald Trump as a candidate in 2012 versus Donald Trump as a candidate in 2016. I'm on Twitter quite a bit, and then I'll sometimes go into the conversations of a political post, 
how can I tell the difference between a human and a bot? Is there an easy way for me to be able to like figure that out? So there's there's some manual sort of uh, heuristics like like markers that are able to that, that will illuminate whether or not an account is fake. Um, at the most baseline level, we look at three different things when it comes to an account and determining whether or not that account is a bot. Uh, one is network markers, so who it follows and who it's, what its friends look like and what its interactions with other people look like. And we, we look to see whether or not those look human, both qualitatively and quantitatively. And, and what I mean by that is that we, we eyeball them and we look at, at them and we take lots of notes, but we also uh, compare them um, using, using uh, statistics to see whether or not they, they look and act like humans. Um, the other thing that we do is we look at the semantics of the account, and basically that's just me using a fancy word for looking at the content. Uh, so we look at the way that the bot's tweeting. If the bot is only tweeting about, or if the account, sorry, excuse me, is tweeting only about one thing, if it tweets only in support of Hillary Clinton and only ever about Hillary content, and it re only ever retweets, that's a pretty good sign that you're dealing with an account that's built uh uh, using bot technology and that's built for a specific political purpose. Um, another thing that you can do is look at uh, the numbers, the, the numbers related to how many followers it has versus who it's following, um, how many times every day the account tweets. And that, that, that latter is, is particularly a really good thing to look at because a lot of times bots, if they're not tweeting really, really regularly, like say every couple minutes, which a lot of bot accounts do. If they're not doing that, then oftentimes they're tweeting on a really strict schedule. So they're tweeting like every 15 minutes because at the end of the day, what they are is, is, is code. Um, and so the more sophisticated bots don't do this. They're, they have, it's pretty easy to randomize how often the account tweets. And in fact, we recently had discussions with bot builders in Germany who told us that they they specifically changed the parameters of how their bot acted and sent political content out surrounding the German election because of papers that we'd written so that they escaped our our search mechanisms. Wow. So you're in the uh, Red Queen syndrome. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely an arms race. And, and, and to be frank with you, oftentimes the people who are building these accounts are a step or two ahead of the people attempting to detect them, including the social media companies, but also researchers like myself and my team. Um, and so, so it's, it can be fairly frustrating. Uh, what, what I, what I will say is that the more common ways of detecting bots, i.e. looking at looking for um, really low follower numbers, but really high followed numbers uh, or looking for a um, no Twitter picture or things like that are increasingly becoming obsolete ways of looking for a bot because um, people who build bots are pretty on to the fact that that they need to get around the most basic ways of detecting a bot. And so a lot of times the tools that exist rely upon very, very rudimentary markers of detecting bots, like the fact that they say they're looking for accounts that tweet every minute or so that no longer exist on Twitter. And so we face a challenge at the moment in terms of detection and identification um, in that the data the data and the way that the bots act constantly moves forward every day. And so we, we have to begin to build tools that, that update with the data. Let's say that I'm a campaign manager for, for someone who's running for office 
and I want to use bots, what, what would my first step be? In my experience, it works differently depending on what country you're in and what kind of race you're talking about. But if you're talking, if we're talking about uh, a high-level U.S. race, um, I think the common route would be to deal with for a candidate to deal with the digital team, and for that digital team, oftentimes to reach out to a contractor uh, who does digital consulting work, and as part of of the the profusion of different things that that digital consultant will offer, including, you know, uh, live streamed video and, and all sorts of other things. Um, oftentimes they will offer a boost in, in social media metrics. And along with that boost comes bots. Um, and that's sort of like oftentimes an unspoken thing, but I've, I've absolutely spoken to people particularly in the Republican party that have worked on high level campaigns that have told me that bots are social bots are one part of sort of a anything goes approach to doing digital marketing during elections. And so it, I constantly had them telling me that it was like the wild west, the way that the digital went for campaigns that basically anything goes and that bots, if bots created some effect even though they weren't able to measure that effect, then they'll just use them just just to see just in case they work. Um, but in other countries, and and increasingly in the United States, um, I think um, this is more sophisticated. So there's all sorts of different types of firms out there that that specialize in this work. But there's also in countries like Russia, but also in Venezuela and Ecuador organizations that are very close to the government that work to do this kind of, of bot driven traffic and opinion manipulation. And they don't only attack citizens in country in these cases, they're also used to um, attack, attack people below the line in the guardian comments section or the, or, you know, the New York times comments section or to, uh, to, to just sow confusion surrounding particular events wherein, a uh, government's PR company decides that they need to try to uh, confuse the dialogue or to, or to try to drive the dialogue surrounding a particular event. And in those cases, uh, our, our, my colleagues have actually just put together a report on cyber troops and about the expenditures that governments have made on, on maintaining cyber armies. And a lot of times it's, it's uh, you know, the Syrian electronic army that does this work or or they will they'll farm it out to a consultant in Bahrain, um, but it's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing to track, and it's particular particularly hard to track in the United States because a lot of times the people doing the work of creating and building bots are subcontractors, and uh, the Federal Elections Commission doesn't require subcontractors to be kept track of. Uh, in terms of where the money was spent. They only require that contractors are known. And so there's a lot of subcontractors running around that do a lot of work for campaigns, but that never show up in public record. And so for people like me who are trying to track where the money goes and then to follow up and talk to people who have, who have benefited from that money being spent, it's very, very challenging. Is it expensive to hire a bot army to, to push, push an agenda? Um, it ranges in expense. So the most the most unsophisticated bot armies you can buy on on Fiverr f i v e r r dot com for a really small amount of money, and they will support you, and probably be, the accounts will be suspended really really quickly. Um, 
Um, but actually, uh, a colleague, Gilad Lotan, who's uh, the chief researcher at um, or data scientist at BuzzFeed now, wrote an article a while back on buying um, a really cheap uh, Twitter Twitter following, and he wrote about as a data scientist how he wondered what what would happen. And what happened over time was that the bot network fell off, but because he had bought all of these fake followers, lots and lots of humans also followed him. So at the end of the day, even though the bots all got deleted, or most of them, he had a much larger following because of the illusion of popularity, which is something that I was talking about earlier. So I find that pretty intriguing. Like a booster rocket. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So everyone, everyone's sort of like, oh, look at this guy. He's really popular. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow him too. Um, the more expensive networks, which you can you know, purchase on the dark web or using a number of other different mechanisms, um, including like, you know, getting contractors that, that offer this as part of their, their, uh, their kit uh, are, are, can, can range to the tens of thousands of dollars. Some of these, some of the networks that we've been told about by the people that build them and by the people that maintain them and use them uh, are years old and the profiles are triangulated. There, 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 there will be a Twitter profile, a Facebook profile, a LinkedIn account, and various other accounts associated with this persona that is run by automation and updated by people and run by people. And, and those, in the, in cases like that, where you have thousands of accounts used that look very, very legitimate, the, the cost is quite, quite high. Um, one place that I would direct people to if they're interested in learning more about, you know, those those more sophisticated bot armies and the more expensive ones is is our is the Computational Propaganda Project's recent paper on Poland. And in that paper, we managed to talk to a guy who maintains who has a company that maintains thirty thousand different personas and has used them for political projects throughout Eastern Europe, but also uses them on behalf of uh, corporate entities. So if uh, someone's trying to sell a headache pill, the bots will suddenly start saying, oh, I have a headache. And then another account will be like, oh, have you tried this? And, uh, you know, something along those lines. That's amazing. So how tied in are these these kind of, uh, sophisticated bot developers with organized crime, particularly in Eastern Europe? I think that they're quite tied in with organized crime and you hit the nail on the head. I think that one way that we can begin to understand bot networks is to, is to look at the ways that money laundering has happened. Um, And this has been a suggestion that I've had from lots of different smart people. There's oftentimes a lot of tie in there. Uh, There's tie in in Eastern Europe um, in, in so far as like the people who are building these bots are supported, you know, through nefarious means. But there's also a lot of tie-in in Southeast Asia there and in um, South America. In particular, um, one place to look and to, to see someone who's basically worked for the highest bidder, you can look to a, a Bloomberg article from last year uh, about, it, it was called uh, sort of something like How to Rig an Election. And it's all about this guy, Andres Sepulveda, who came out and told people that he basically had worked for all sorts of different governments throughout South America um, and Mexico and Central America uh, to sway elections. And he he's kind of went gone on the books about all the different ways that that works. And, and it's absolutely tied in with, with the criminal underside of things. In fact, Sepulveda himself is serving something like a seven or eight year sentence in Colombia for um, for attempting to rig an election using these methods. Wow. You know, people are, are used to spam now, and I, we, spam has been going on for 20 years. And I think people now kind of realize that 
it's part of the ecosystem of of internet communications and that it can be managed but never eradicated from the system. Is that how we're going to have to look at bots also, that it's just a problem that isn't ever going to completely go away and it's something that we're going to constantly having to to battle to maintain control? I think you're right. I, I, I think that that my stance, and I, I don't think that it's an uncommon one amongst people who understand a bit more of the architecture of the internet, is that bots are absolutely an infrastructural part of the internet. They, they, they've been on the internet since it began, similarly to spam, but even more so than spam, bots, bots are used for all different sorts of things. So, you know, th- in terms of social bots, the New York Times uses a bot to post articles every time an article is written. Uh, and so automation and this type of work will exist. And, and the challenge that we face a lot of the time in, in trying to deal with bots in terms of regulations or, uh, or that the companies face is that the anonymity that's provided by Twitter and, and the automation that allows people to, to fool around with the API, um, the back end of Twitter, is a really cool, crucial part of these social, social media sites that allows for all sorts of beneficial uses, even by activists um, and people in countries where, where the government is repressive. But a lot of times those same things afford, afford problematic uses as well. So you know, terrorists can also use bots in attempts and have used bots, including ISIS, in attempts to recruit or to spread information related to, to a terror organization. And so I think that we're, we're at this stage where what we have to do is, is yes, accept the fact that social bots will probably exist in some format on, on social networking platforms for the foreseeable future. But that doesn't mean that we can't have sensible policies to identify when an account's using automation or to, um, to create some kind of, uh, some kind of coalition that looks at the ways that we can preserve the really important democratic parts of the web while trying to, uh, to regulate the really problematic aspects of, of bot usage that, that lead to people who are really powerful, like political actors and, and corporations, to preserve their power and maintain their power when, when maybe they shouldn't. Are Twitter and Facebook doing everything that they can to deal with this bot problem? Or do they have a kind of a conflict of interest because it boosts the number of supposed human beings on their network so they, they aren't as aggressive in, in eliminating bots as they could be? I think that Twitter and Facebook would tell you that they are doing everything that they can. I don't think that that's the case. I think that there is a conflict of interest, especially on Twitter, with the way that these bots drive up traffic. Um, eyeballs on the page have traditionally been been used to recruit advertising to to these sites, and so if if uh, bots are used to drive up the amount of likes or views that an advertisement gets, that makes the advertiser happy. But no longer can we really trust those metrics because they're absolutely gamed across sites, including YouTube as well. Um, and one thing, one really important point is that Twitter, Twitter is, uh, Twitter's, com- the company of Twitter is smaller than Google's Dublin office. They have very few people working there that can really address this issue. And while they, while they 
do have a few teams that are working on this. I, I think that the teams are A, understaffed, and B, that there's not a lot of money at Twitter to fund this. Twitter's in a really, really tricky position at the moment, uh, not just in terms of the role of bots or disinformation on their platform, but I just think fiscally overall. And so I think that uh, a lot of times what ends up happening with them is that they hire they hire PR consultants to, to try to explain away the project or to refute uh, to explain away the problem or to refute research from groups like us and say that it's not any good, um, but to do much less when it comes to actually dealing with the problem and to being publicly open, like open publicly about wh- what they're doing and how. Um, and, and that's a problem for me. The other thing with Facebook is is that Facebook Facebook might be doing a lot of stuff on and around bots, um, but they don't share it with anyone. And so... Uh, Facebook has access to so much great data and information and obviously they want to balance protecting users and, and user identity and what they're, what goes on there. But they also need to begin to work with, with uh, people who are concerned that, that their platforms being used to attack democracy um, and to begin designing for democracy. So I think that, that uh, Facebook has a lot of, good people working there that that want to address the problem, but I really think they need to begin sharing information with researchers and uh, and otherwise I think that what, what's going to end up happening is that we'll have a lot of heavy-handed regulations like what we see in Germany with massive fines for any piece of fake news that's published that doesn't even like make sense technically, uh, technologically, but like that that lawmakers don't care about. So so the social media companies have have to do more, and they will be doing more. And I think the fact of the matter is, is that they know they have a major problem in this, and that uh, they're trying to do damage control while trying to figure sensible um, paths forward out. And I, I think that that it's going to take more than just internal Facebook or Twitter regulation to deal with this problem. One one final question: Let's say that Twitter called you in and said, Sam. We, we know we, we know we have a huge problem. What, what should we do? What's the, the first thing that we should do to address this problem? What would you tell them? Well, I, you know, I've talked to, I've talked to actually most of the social media companies and people at most of them. And, and usually what I say and what I have said in the past is a really good first step is for us to work on some collaborative research using, you know, on Twitter, for instance, Firehose access to a particular problem so that we can get the whole picture rather than having just 1% of the data, which is what Twitter usually provides to researchers like me, we need to have access to the profusion of data surrounding the U.S. election to begin to do some really sensible studies. And then, and, and to have us put it out or to, to collaboratively put out some research that makes it, makes it clear that the company has a vested interest in trying to eradicate the problem of disinformation on their platform. Um, the other thing is that... Uh, that the platforms need to work to figure out the ways and to be to be more open with the ways in which bots could and could and do affect their algorithms, um, and and that is a really challenging problem because not only are the algorithms, for obvious reasons, proprietary, but also the companies don't want people to know that uh, the way that their fancy machine learning algorithm that's supposed to um, detect salient things for people to see in their feed is actually flawed and, and influenced a lot by automated accounts. Um, so they need to be public about that. A really simple step that I'm not sure is the best step 
but I think could get move us in the right direction is to begin to, for sites like Twitter, to begin to identify accounts that use high degrees of automation. And that's, that's not to say that the automation is always problematic, but it just lets people know that Twitter, that people can use automation online. And so if you're discussing with some politics with Joe Schmo 500 on Twitter, that uh, and that person's sharing articles with you, or that person's, if you're a journalist, that person's attacking you, and then you see that it's a highly automated account, you will most likely interact with it in a very different way than you would if you thought it was actually a person or or whatnot. And I think that that works to do something which is is crucial and is is a much more long term goal, which is which is the sort of the elusive goal of of building media literacy and digital literacy, which is absolutely important, but that uh, that I I think is much more of a long term goal. I think that the the social media companies should have a have a a role in helping to build digital literacy, but I'm also very, very wary of um, of solutions to this issue that put all of the uh, onus upon the user, because I think that the user already has a really challenging time navigating these sites. I think that the companies absolutely have to have to have and to do something on their own. They're benefiting massively financially, especially Facebook around this stuff, and so. You know, I don't think it's fair to just say the users should have to figure it out on their own. I don't think that's fair. This is incredible. I, I'm so glad you're coming to Institute to continue your work on this. Sam Woolley is now here full-time at Institute for the Future, and he's heading up our newly created Digital Intelligence Lab, If you'd like to support Sam's work, as well as everything else we do, visit iftf.org slash donate. The music in For Future Reference is by Greg Fleischett.